I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing John Avalon, CNN political analyst and a top-notch historian about his new book, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace, which came out February 15, 2022, and we did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on April 1, 2022. Enjoy. And now it's my honor to introduce our guest, John Avalon. John has not been to Dallas before yesterday. True. So I'm loving it. <laughs> Great. John has had a very distinguished career on 9-11-2001. He was the lead speechwriter for Rudy Giuliani and dealt with the entire fallout uh, after 9-11. Uh, he uh, stayed connected with uh, Mayor Giuliani for a while, but then went into uh, journalism, uh, former editor-in-chief of the Daily Beast. He's currently a CNN political anchor on the morning show. But above all, and the reason he's here today is because he's such a great historian. Uh, I first uh, encountered John's work about five or six years ago, his book on George Washington's Farewell Address, which is an absolute classic. Once you finish reading this Lincoln book, then get his Washington book, you'll be deeply enriched by it. And uh, unlike other television personalities who write history books and uh, have them promoted, John stands out. He does it all by himself. There's no collaborator. Uh, he does the research. He does the writing. Above all, he does the thinking. So, John, welcome to Dallas. Thank you very much, Calvin. Um, I, I'm laughing because it seems so absurd to me that some people don't write their own books, but that's a scientific fact. Uh, by the way, before we get, I just want to thank you all not only for your hospitality, but this room. If you love American history like I do, uh, and, and, you know, to see just in this room alone the, the artifacts and the architecture, my wife would laugh because the, 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 uh, the, the wood paneling as well. I mean, this is, this is an unbelievable environment. What a great gift to your city, and it's a great gift for me to be here with you all this morning. It's great. Love it. In fact, I should have said that. John's wife, Margaret Hoover, as in firing line with Margaret Hoover, served in the Bush administration, so you see her on television as well as John. What a power couple, and they have two young kids who, who I, I think are going to turn out fine. <laughs> now, now, John, uh, whenever somebody takes on the idea of writing a new book about Lincoln, uh, it's a challenge mm. because over 16,000 books uh, have already been written about Lincoln. And I'm sure that when you'd encounter your friends over the last several years when you're doing the research and the writing and say, hey, I'm working on a book on Lincoln, they said, really? Is there something new? Is there some new angle? I'm sure you encountered that. How did you answer that question? Of course I did. Um, well, yeah, the first answer is, you know, it, you know, simply wanting to spend more time with Abraham Lincoln is not a good enough reason to write your own book on Abraham Lincoln, but it almost is. Um, I am very interested in the idea of how you win a piece, um, as well as the broader idea of sort of Lincoln's leadership in terms of defending democracy. And I had found a quote years before um, by the American general Lucius Clay, who oversaw America's occupation of Germany. Lucius Clay was a uh, Georgia-born, 30 years after the Civil War, son of a, a Georgia senator. 
Um, and he led what is known as the good occupation of Germany, right? We finally won the peace. Somebody asked him, a reporter, what guided his decisions? And General Lucius Clay said, I tried to think what Abraham Lincoln would have done for the South if he had lived. And that was so profound and so unexpected and offered such an insight into that, that sweet spot where the past informs the present and guides us towards a better future that I immediately became interested in that idea. And as I went around, I spoke to Lincoln experts. You know, no one had written a book about Lincoln the Peacemaker. And the answer, why, is sort of obvious. He's assassinated five days after Appomattox. He doesn't have a chance to implement his vision of how to win the peace. But that doesn't mean that he hadn't been developing it quite specifically in, in speeches and proclamations and conversations with his generals. And so that's what I sketch out. It's his plan to win the peace after winning the war and his vision for national reconciliation and reunification. And here it is, 2022, incredible national polarization as opposed to reconciliation. Was that thought charging through your mind throughout your research and your writing as to how relevant Lincoln's mindset was as it could be applied to today? Of course. I mean, look, all my, all my work, all my books, and specifically books, but also columns, one of the major flow-throughs is the question of how we confront and overcome hyperpartisanship and polarization and reasserting the sort of the strength of the center um, and, and the secrets of leadership that can unite us in divided times. Um, to some extent, that's what Washington's farewell is about, you know, where he's worry, warning future generations about the forces he fears can destroy our democratic republic, specifically and primarily what we would call hyperpartisanship faction. But here's Lincoln 80 years later in the crucible. Um, and, and part of the, I think, the virtue of studying history and applied history is uh, partly it gives us perspective on our own times. You study the Civil War, you realize we've been through worse times before. We'll get through this. But we also, I think, need to learn the lessons of Lincoln's leadership because for a man to be able in the middle of a Civil War constantly be guided by the belief that there's more than unites us than divides us as Americans, to be guided by empathy and honesty and humor and humility and to elevate the debate by using humor and scripture and logic. Th those, are, those are secrets of leadership that I think we, we very much need to rediscover today. Well, speaking of scripture, uh, your book's introduction opens with Lincoln in Richmond, Richmond, Virginia, the capital of the South, after it's been taken over by the Union Army a few days before Appomattox. And you say that in Richmond, uh, obviously the people who mainly saw him were African-Americans who were joyful and they were trying to touch the hem of his garment. And Harper's Weekly, uh, the leading newspaper of the time, compared Lincoln's bringing the war to an end on Palm Sunday to Jesus riding into Jerusalem uh, on Palm Sunday. And add to this fact, Lincoln was shot on Good Friday. Two days later, church services all over the country, ministers are saying, well... Jesus died for the sins of the world. Lincoln died for the sins of our country. The sequence of events is almost biblical. Mm -hmm. So how do you account for these incredible, incredibly numerous similarities that happened 1,865 years apart? Well, accounting for them is difficult because that would, that would require some, some prophetic eyesight that I don't claim to have. But I, I do think the coincidences were not lost on his contemporaries at all. I think to some extent Lincoln functions as, and I don't mean this sacrilegiously, sort of the Jesus of American politics. I think he exemplifies and articulates what I call in the book New Testament leadership. 
Um, and, and even though, you know, he's, he's not an orthodox believer, his faith definitely deepens during the war, particularly after the death of his son, Willie. And, and the second inaugural, which is sort of the key text of the book, is a, a very religious speech. Now, what's interesting is, is you know, 701 words, the first three quarters of it are a very Old Testament vision, right? This is the Civil War as collective punishment for the sin of slavery on the North and the South, right? The last paragraph is what we all know so well, you know, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with faith in the right as God gives us to see the right, is a New Testament vision. It's a roadmap to reconciliation. Um, and, 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 and Lincoln and, and faith very much suffused what he did. And I think more importantly, not just what he said, but what he did. It, it's, it's the essential insight isn't just what I call the politics of the golden rule that I think flows through what Lincoln does treating others as you would like to be treated. But also that most difficult insight, which is that, you know, you don't defeat hate with hate. You defeat hate with love. And I think he exemplified that in ways that are are deeply enduring. In fact, I give a presentation on the power of words. The second inaugural address had 701 words. Out of those words, over 500 were one syllable. Mm -hmm. So whenever you're thinking about writing a speech and developing a rhythm in what you're saying, one-syllable words are always better than two or three-syllable words, and Lincoln and Churchill were the masters of of both. True. Now, Lincoln, obviously, as the war goes on, his original generals don't want to fight. He finally finds Ulysses Grant, whose best friend, uh, Elihu Washburn, Ray Washburn's grandfather. Where, where's Ray Washburn? Who gave this book? Ray, thank you very much. I, I, I reference uh, your, your descent in the book, so pleasure to meet you. But uh, anyway, he realized the only way we're going to win this war is with a hard war. Mm-hmm. And, and it's going to be tough and, and, and constant. And, uh, and then finally, uh, as the South gets weaker and weaker and weaker, they decide, hey, I think we kind of like to end this before everybody gets killed. And yet Lincoln insisted on unconditional surrender, which delayed the peace. Uh, But what was his thinking on on why he had to have unconditional surrender before he was ready to talk peace? This is really, the the heart of the book is, is Lincoln's prescription for how you win a peace is unconditional surrender followed by a magnanimous peace. And, um, you know, he is a man of peace instinctively in a time of war. He has no military experience. He has no executive experience uh, before he takes over the mantle. Um, he can draw on character and, 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 a, and, a, and a knowledge that grows, right? He, he learns on the job. His essential insight is unconditional surrender is essential. Um, let me explain it to you as he would with a story. Confederate uh, peace negotiators come up to him at Hampton Roads and they say, look, we want to have a ceasefire. And, um, and we'll work out all the terms later. And they have a bunch of crazy ideas, one of which is the North and South would invade Mexico together. But, you know, um, Lincoln re- refuses a ceasefire before surrender, when it would have been the politically popular thing to do. I mean, three quarters of a million Americans dead. Let's stop the bloodshed. Then we'll work out the details. But Lincoln has the discipline to say no. Why? He understands that if there is a ceasefire before surrender... That will remove the political will to end slavery. And if you don't remove the root cause of the war, slavery, it will just ensure that another war ignites on the ashes of the past. He says, no man desires peace more than I, but I'm unwilling to have peace on such terms it would guarantee the next war. And and so that requires a lot of 
focus and discipline to not do the easy popular thing, but it's essential to get the right deal, as it were. And then once there's unconditional surrender, once your opponents admit and accept defeat, then the magnanimous peace kicks in where you build people back up. You treat them with dignity and respect. You ensure there's accountability for the top tier. Um, but, but that's, you know, as you carry forward the idea, that's exactly what we got wrong in the wake of World War I, which created World War II, right? It was, it was a ceasefire before surrender and not a magnanimous peace sufficiently. Uh, but it's what we got right ultimately. The, the grandchildren of the Civil War, it's what they got right in, in the wake of the Civil War. Unconditional surrender as a matter of policy set by FDR and Churchill, followed by a magnanimous peace exemplified by the Marshall Plan. Well, we have between us this very famous painting, uh, or a copy of a very famous painting, called The Peacemakers. I know, in this room, we need to clarify, this is not the... Uh, <laughs> Good point. <laughs> uh, the artist G.P.A. Uh, Healy, I was delighted when I learned the title The Peacemakers came from the Beatitude, Blessed are the Peacemakers. And you've... Your description of it in the book made me get on Amazon and order a copy. i got to have a copy of this painting. And John says in, the, in his office as well. Tell us about why this painting is so important, why it's so moving. <clears throat> the, 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 this was an early contender to be the cover of the book because it, it sums up the spirit of the book. This painting is called The Peacemakers, as Talmadge said. It was purchased by Harry Truman in 1947, notably, and hangs in the White House today. It was painted soon after Lincoln's death in consultation and conversation with Sherman Grant, and this is Admiral Porter, comparatively forgotten, but an interesting character. Um, and so it's it set up, you know, as the men remembered it. Um, it's on the River Queen, which was sort of the aquatic Air Force One of the day. It's a, a steamship um, where uh, Lincoln goes to the front lines for more than two weeks towards the end of his life to meet with the generals before the final offensive. Um, the, the only really license that's taken is, is the rainbow behind Lincoln's head, if you look closely, which was an artistic license by Healy uh, in acknowledgment of Lincoln as a peacemaker and, and as deceased. But it really, I think, sums up good pe- It's the spirit of the Enlightenment, right? It's, it's good people working together in concert to build a better world. And, um, and, and, and it, it is just a, it, it sums up so much of the man's spirit, but also it's as close as a photograph as you could get without being a photograph of that actual moment in history. March 29th, 1865, on the River Queen, Hampton Roads, Virginia, talking about how the, the war would finally come to an end. And then specifically Lincoln's vision for the terms of peace. And he kept saying, I want liberal and honorable terms. You know, let them have their guns to go home and shoot crows with and their, and their uh, horses to go home and, and plow their fields with. We want them to obey the laws and accept the union. While we're talking about pictures, let's talk about the image on the front of your dust jacket. Ah, I love it. Uh, How did you happen to... uh, Let's do a quiz. Can anybody in the audience, without looking inside, identify who the artist of this picture... N.C. Wyeth, Robbie Briggs. Way to go, Robbie! You get our our praise and admiration and nothing more, but that's good. (laughs) All right, so John, tell us about your choice of N.C. Wyeth, Andrew Wyeth's father... Uh, the top illustrator in the world in his era. Go ahead. He, he was. First of all, I love N.C. Wyeth. He's the father of, of Andrew Wyeth. Um, and he was an illustrator as well as, as a fine arts painter. But what he excelled in is this sort of American mythology. You know, it's got the, the lighting of, of a Maxfield Parish. But what this came from, uh, and it's, it's a fascinating story that involves some push and pull with my publishers. Um, uh, but when I saw it, 
I just knew it was the right image. It was painted for a calendar that N.C. Wyeth painted for the John C. Hormel Meat Company of Iowa in 1940 called The Making of America, and each month had a dedicated painting of a different moment. Two were of Lincoln, but there's Jefferson writing the Declaration, there's a wagon train going west, and this is December. And I found out later it was called With Malice Toward None. It's his image of sort of the apotheosis of, of Lincoln, but also in, in, in you know, writing or conjuring up the, the second inaugural. And what's significant about it, it's December 1940. The war is raging in Europe. America's not yet in. Um, and so it's all metaphorical, but you don't know, the country didn't know whether the storm clouds were approaching or receding. But it, it's Lincoln on that elevated plane. Um, I think in a way that continues to inspire. So it just caught a lot of the themes and it's a great story behind it. And if anyone wants to talk copyright law around it, boy, I got deep into that around this too. That's all right. <laughs> all right, well, given how close in time it was between when the Civil War ended and when Lincoln was killed, you know, we talk about his plans for reconciliation, reconstruct, reconstruction. How far along was he before he was killed? So <clears throat> Lincoln had been, been developing his plans for how you win a peace from early on in the war. Uh, th this is part of the extraordinary thing about his leadership. Lincoln's essential insight is, if you don't win the peace, you don't really win the war. And, and you gotta remember, there's never been a civil war on that scale before. Um, it, it, there's just not, nothing like it. So Lincoln can't, as the founders did often, they, they could look to figures from ancient Greek and Roman republics for lessons. There's no one Lincoln can really look to for guidance in this situation. You know, America's the, the world's largest sort of democratic republic at the time. All the aristocrats and autocrats are expecting us to fail. So the Civil War is kind of an I told you so moment. They're waiting for us to fail. Said it couldn't be done. Liberty's, of course, on the line. But Lincoln's also playing for these larger stakes of how you win a peace. And because he understands you can't salt the fields in a civil war. You got to find a way to get fighting folks to find a way to live together again. And, and so he's thinking about this in 1862, some of the darkest days of the war. He's putting some of the policies in place that will help us reunite. Transcontinental Railroad, land-grant colleges, the Homestead Act. He understands there needs to be political reconciliation and that there should be, he believes there should be amnesty for, for rank-and-file Confederates, but accountability for the folks who should have known better, members of Congress, the courts, um, people who, you know, the military who left. They should not be allowed to reclaim their power in his mind. But he is offering amnesty. He is offering a vision for a multiracial democracy, though he knows it will take a time to get there. He knows we need to remove slavery as a matter of political reform. We need to secure military gains to avoid chaos in the, in the wake of the war. And then we need economic expansion to create a sense of shared investment in a prosperous future. And that's what the legislation that he helps put in place in 1862 does. He wants to move the nation's attention westward, take us off this north-south divide that had been such an irritant. Go west, find prosperity. He's welcoming immigrants in as well. He's not concerned about you know, the labor pool issues. Um, and then cultural reintegration that he knows will take time. He has presidential proclamations, conversations, speeches, he sets forward a very clear vision, which he then explains in great detail to his generals uh, on the River Queen and elsewhere. Uh, and, and it's most poetically summed up in, in the final paragraph of the second inaugural. So he has a fairly detailed plan in place, including his final speech of the war. Everyone expects him to give a victory speech, and instead he gives a speech about what the principles he wants to guide Reconstruction. Um, and, and he 
believes it's going to be different in every state. So this is all out there. It's collecting it together. You see there's a very clear portrait, and he had been working on it some of the darkest days of the war. This is the thing about reconciling leadership, which Lincoln invests, right, and basically invents. He is able to think beyond the cause and effect of the moment. He is thinking long-term, even in the middle of the war. He is able to imagine a future that is not predetermined by the pain of the past or the present. And, and then has the leadership to get us there, not only in his words, but in his actions. Um, and that is so, what's so remarkable about him. It's not just the way he's thinking about it and the policy plans he's putting in place. It's his personal leadership. I'll tell you a quick story. Towards the end of the war, and the book's full of things like this, he's visiting wounded Union soldiers at a field depot hospital um, in, in City Point, Virginia. And he's hundreds of them, probably more than a thousand. He's going, he's shaking each hands, and he's an emotional guy. And he's you know, hearing about them and their stories and how they're wounded, and he's horrified by the human cost of the war. As he's getting ready to leave, he sees another tent out back. And he asks the doctor who's touring with him around, what's back there? The doctor kind of stuffily says, oh, you don't need to worry about that. You don't need to go there. Those are just wounded rebel soldiers. Lincoln stands up taller than he already is and says, that's exactly where I do need to go. And he goes and he shakes all of those wounded rebel soldiers' hands and asks them their name and talks to them. And it's that personal leadership that I think steers us towards a horizon of reconciliation. It's a place you're not going to get at overnight, but you steer toward it. And the power of his personal example is what he knows will actually be the most indelible thing. Uh, and, And that's what makes him still so remarkable. Well, apparently word got spread... Uh, all over the country, including to the South, such that when he was killed, mm. <clears throat> the people in the South knew, oh my gosh, this is the worst possible thing uh, Some that of could them. happen. <laughs> yeah. Some of them did. So, so how did that word get around, and um, among the leaders in the South, what, what was the reaction? Well, there was a consensus to the reaction to Lincoln's death. Yeah, I mean, it, there, to be clear, there were folks in the South who celebrated. And, you know, there are diaries of people who say, you know, uh, he, he got what he deserved. But what people understood was that Lincoln was a magnanimous figure who understood the feelings of the South. And you can see this in the, the Confederate negotiators who meet with him at several points. Um, they also know that he's got political pressure from the radical Republicans in his party um, to be vindictive in victory. And that's exactly what he does not want to do. He thinks that will be deeply counterproductive, right? He combines moral courage on slavery with moderation, right? He believes you have to empathize with your opponents as a means of reasoning with them. And there are radicals and reactionaries in his time, and Lincoln is a reconciler. And the radicals in his own party really want to rip the South out from its roots. And so that had gotten word. I mean, even in some negotiations, they realize that he's not going to hang them for treason, uh, because you know he doesn't want to make martyrs of them, but that's the traditional punishment for treason. So when people realize that Lincoln has been assassinated, the goodwill that the country had been evidencing, because the country had been internalizing Lincoln's message, they know that that's dashed, and it's going to create this new pendulum swing between Andrew Johnson and the radical Republicans that lead us to not fully win the peace after the, after the Civil War. And, and the lessons of Reconstruction are things we should be studying more as a country right now for a million different reasons. But um, you know, even towards the end of his life, I found an interview with Jefferson Davis, who's living in a benefactor's mansion on the Gulf of Mexico in Mississippi. And, and he says, you know, Lincoln was, was an honest and good man, and, and his death was the worst thing that could have happened to the South. But 
Confederate generals were saying the same thing when they heard about it uh, at the time. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's a tragedy that compounded a tragedy. Well, you've already uh, talked about General Clay, but at the end of World War II, you had an incredible student of history in Harry Truman, as well as George Marshall. But, but connect the dots between the thinking of American leadership at the end of World War II in the context of their appreciation of Lincoln. Sure. And this is the unexpected detour the book takes, right? I mean, it's focused primarily on the last six weeks of Lincoln's life, very close focus. But then I do the afterlife of the idea, how we, you know, fail to win the peace under Andrew Johnson, um, his erratic, egotistic leadership, uh, how Grant gets us back on the Lincoln path briefly, beats back the KKK with the help of a Southern attorney general. Um, which Amos T. Ackerman is a fascinating figure, looking at how Lincoln's ideas are applied in World War I. Woodrow Wilson, first president from the South since the Civil War. Um, and he has the scars of growing up in a state that lost a war, Virginia. Um, and he wants a peace without victory, he says, with Germany. But he gets Lincoln's prescription, unconditional surrender, and followed by a magnanimous peace, perfectly wrong. Right? You know, we, we grant the Germans in World War I a ceasefire before surrender. The negotiations at Versailles go terribly off track. And then the Allies push for reparations. Right? It's not a magnanimous peace. It's a punishing peace. And that gives birth to a new lost cause mythology in Germany becomes the Nazi uh, party. The World War II generation, who are the grandchildren of the Civil War, now, Harry Truman talks about how his grandparents are, civil, are, are Confederate sympathizers from Missouri. His mother won't even sleep in the Lincoln bedroom, by the way. Um, so he understands the, the dangers of resentment and hatred in the wake of war. He learns the lessons of, of, of Wilson's mistakes perfectly, right? So there's a policy of unconditional surrender followed by a magnanimous peace. He begins working with George Marshall and Republican, uh, foreign, uh, for, the Republican leader of the Foreign Services Committee, uh, uh, Arthur Vandenberg, former isolationist, who found you know, the, the need for internationalism after the attack on Pearl Harbor, and they worked together to build the Marshall Plan. They, 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 you know, the Republican involvement makes it better. Republicans control Congress at the time. You gotta remember, that's a blip. Um, Truman doesn't have to trade credit for it. He gives it to Marshall. Uh, they said they're gonna run it like a business, not like a government program. They're gonna get allied investment. It's gonna be a targeted period of time, three years. But they've convinced the American people on a bipartisan basis to forego a peace dividend to invest in winning the peace. It's the opposite of reparations. And we don't only build our own allies up, we build Germany back up. And it's all part of creating a sort of a bulwark against the expansion of communism, that's true. But it, it does what we, we failed to do so often. We, we win the peace through investment in new multilateral organizations like NATO, um, the, 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 the economic arrangements and, and trade negotiations that become the basis of the EU. And it's just a, another reminder of how we have taken, to some extent, 75 years of relative peace and prosperity in Europe for granted. That is not the history of Europe. But I think we're remembering it belatedly, but rather abruptly right now, why those organizations are important. And, and the world that America helped build with its allies based on the foundation of winning the peace. They applied very consciously the lessons of Lincoln. They talked about Lincoln all the time, primarily as a figure of reconciliation and investment. Now, talking about Andrew Johnson, who's regarded as one of our two worst presidents, <clears throat> as compared to his predecessor, Lincoln, 
We talk about what people appreciate and don't appreciate in a president, which obviously has application to 2022 in our recent years, distinguishing between a president's policies and a president's character. Mm. You say character is most important. Talk about not only that being your conclusion, but that that's history's conclusion. I don't think history's at all ambiguous about this. Character is the single most important quality in a president, bar none. Um, Washington cultivated his character. He knew that through the elevation of his character, he could create a national character because he's a president without precedent. But the real uh, ultimate proving ground, I think, is Abraham Lincoln and the contrast in particular with Andrew Johnson. You know, Lincoln was not set up to succeed, right? He enters the presidency as a new president from a new political party. You know, the Republican Party was an upstart third party in a time. It was a moderate progressive party, big tent, devoted to opposing the expansion of slavery, built on the you know, shattered foundations of the old Whig party. He has no executive experience. He's got one term in Congress. He's never been a governor, never been a mayor, never run a business. He's got no military experience. Right? He, is, he has been appointed honorary captain of, of, a, of a little group in the Black Hawk War and said the bloodiest fight he got into was with mosquitoes. He does not seem like the guy that you want to run the country in the middle of a civil war. But he's got two indispensable things. He's got character. And he's got the capacity to grow. And I think we forget too often something as basic as the fact that somebody's politics and their policies reflect their principles, which are rooted in their personality. You know, I think we, we, we sometimes make our historical figures too distant. We put them up on a pedestal, sometimes for very honorable intended reasons, but it makes their wisdom more distant. They seem superhuman, something other than us. Lincoln's core personality, uh, as I said briefly, I think can be distilled to empathy, honesty, humor, and humility. And that ends up informing his principles and his politics and his vision for winning the peace. This politics of the golden rule, trying to treat other people as you'd like to be treated, informs his opposition to slavery, as well as his approach to trying to build the South back up after the war. Um, and character is just the thing that makes all the difference at the end of the day. Andrew Johnson comes in, and he does not have a sort of moderate temperament. He is erratic. He is, um, he is somebody who is alternately radical and reactionary. Uh, the Atlantic Magazine at the time describes him as being egotistic to the point of mental disease, thin-skinned and vain and ill-tempered. Um, and he gets our country off in precisely the wrong direction. He is deeply opposed to anything resembling equal rights for African Americans. He grants amnesty fast for former Confederates. He acquiesces over the creation of the Black Codes, which are basically laws that create sort of slavery without the chains, that begin put, get put in place as soon as the fall of 1865. Um, and it's that erratic nature of his leadership gets us deeply off track and then causes a, a sort of a, a erratic swing between the radical Republicans who are trying to combat him. Um, it comes down to character, though, at the end of the day. It comes down to character. And I think Lincoln's character is the key to his greatness. And you hear this over and over again, including people like General Sherman, who remarked that I'd never met someone who combined the qualities of greatness with goodness. It's his goodness that made Lincoln really stand out among his contemporaries. You hear that over and over again. It's his reminder that kindness can be consistent with effective leadership. We don't talk about that enough, it seems to me. We don't honor that enough. 
But that's one of the reasons that Lincoln example endures. But it's a cautionary tale. Now, in your conclusion, you detail how world-recognized peacemakers on the order of Mahatma Gandhi, Willie Brandt, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, all recognized the genius of Lincoln. So it's been over 150 years since his passing. Do you foresee any lessening of his legacy over the next 150 years? I don't, um, which is a tough thing to say because time itself has its gravitational pull. But I think Lincoln is so distinguished because of the essential example of his character and the almost impossible narrative structures of his life and the circumstances around his death. I think he stands above because he held himself to a higher standard. You mentioned that panoply of, of Nobel Peace Prize winners in particular who seem to venerate Lincoln because of his embodiment and invention of reconciling leadership. Um, what Lincoln stands for them isn't only in the American context, the, the simple vision of what he did. It's that Lincoln, and it, it, Nelson Mandela's biographer says this when Mandela dies in, a, in a, a, an obituary called Africa's Lincoln. And he says, you know, Lincoln, Mandela, like Lincoln, was stood out because he didn't do what most politicians do, which is divide to conquer. Didn't divide people into tribes and appeal to their grievances. He tried to lift everybody up on the basis of their common humanity. And the definition of reconciliation in part says they try to make divided and inconsistent systems whole and consistent. And that requires looking beyond all these, these tribal divides that are the easiest way to achieve political power, uh, to move us towards reconciliation on the basis of our shared humanity um, and, and the leadership to get people to listen and to embody that through your actions as well as your words. That's what Lincoln is able to communicate. And the fact that he's able to do it, you know, he's the, he's the person and the president most quoted by, by um, Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King by far. Dozens and dozens of times in speeches and sermons. Um, that, you know, he's an inspiration, you know, to Nelson Mandela. The fact that Willie Brandt during the Cold War, Mahatma Gandhi as he's developing the philosophy of nonviolence. Lincoln is the forever American because he embodies our best values but also stands out from the pack. So I, I don't think so. I think we're not going to find another Lincoln. We shouldn't look for it in that narrow way. What we should be doing is looking for people of a similar spirit. That's the gift that I think he still gives us today. Before we open the floor to questions, uh, I don't do this often, but I'm doing it with John just because there's so many jaw-dropping great passages in this book. But the one that stood out for me, John, is on pages 142 and 143, uh, which describes while Lincoln was on this ship uh, in the context of the, of the peacemakers. <clears throat> but when I read this, I, I just, it's just one of those things you go, <laughs> So anyway, John, why don't you set up this, the, the context right. and, then, and then read the passage. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, so <clears throat> this is a, uh, a section in the book called, unexpectedly for some folks, Dixie and Macbeth. And it's, it's how Lincoln is drawing in his final days on Dixie, the unofficial Southern uh, anthem, which was written on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, by the way. But... Um, uh, <laughs> In fact, let me interrupt you one second. You've all got a book. Go to page 142 and 143. I think as you hear John speak and read, 
as you see the words, I think they'll jump off the page. So go ahead, John. So thank you. And, and, and Lincoln, who is a, you know, not a formally educated man, but who speaks in parables and draws particularly from the Bible and Shakespeare and Aesop, but particularly Macbeth is his favorite play. And he is going home on the day Appomattox is getting done, but he doesn't know it. He's traveling after more than two weeks at the front lines with his family on the River Queen back to Washington, D.C., and he's gravitating towards reading his favorite humorists, which he does for self-medication. He tells stories and jokes constantly. Um, but then also, alternately, Macbeth. And so that's what's happening here. It's Palm Sunday. As the sun rose on Palm Sunday, April 9th, Lincoln looked out over the shimmering waters of the Chesapeake Bay, 150 miles from Appomattox. All was relaxed upon the River Queen. Unable to receive telegraphs between ports, Lincoln was able to focus on his family and friends. The information-obsessed president would be unreachable for most of the day. As the conversation in the main cabin turned to literature, the president read aloud to his captive audience. Characteristically, he alternated from comedy to tragedy, from the slapstick wisdom of Artemis Ward to Shakespeare's Macbeth, his favorite play. It does not take great feats of imagination to understand why Lincoln gravitated toward Macbeth. It is a cautionary tale set amid civil war, the story of a striver with a wife who simultaneously drives him upward towards power and downward towards despair. Guilt robs him of sleep. He is surrounded by many but feels alone, forced to wear a mask of genial command concealing a mind on fire. No matter how high he climbs the ladder of success, he cannot outpace his fate. That day on the River Queen, Lincoln read one soliloquy repeatedly, the anguished cry of a victorious king confronting the bloody cost of his ambition. We have scotched the snake, not killed it. She'll close and be herself whilst our poor malice remains in danger of her former tooth. But let the frame of things disjoint. Both the worlds suffer ere we eat our meal in fear and sleep in the affliction of these terrible dreams that shake us nightly. Better to be with the dead, whom we to gain our peace have sent to peace, than on to the torture of the mind to lie in restless ecstasy. Duncan is in his grave. After life's fitful fever, he sleeps well. Treason has done his worst nor steel, nor poison, malice, domestic, foreign levy, nothing can touch him further. Now, either because he was struck by the weird beauty of those verses or from a vague presentiment coming over him, Mr. Lincoln paused here while reading, the Marquis de Chambrona, French uh, envoy recalled, and began to explain to us how true a description of the murderer that one was. When the dark deed achieved, its tortured perpetrator came to envy the sleep of his victims. And he read over again the same scene. At a moment of unknown triumph, Abraham Lincoln was meditating on murder. It was a desolate vision of victory. The South, like the snake, who was bloodied, was bloodied but still dangerous. Peace was elusive to the living who bore responsibility for war. But perhaps Lincoln's faith was, fate was not yet set. He could still redeem something from all the blood and loss if he could reunite the nation and rededicate it to the proposition that all men are created equal. If that doesn't blow your mind, you need to go see a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, questions from the audience? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Jeff. It's not a historical question, but just hearing you read that. Mm-hmm. 
I did an audio version. Yeah, yeah no, I, I loved it. I can't imagine someone else. Well, thank you. you. You're all welcome to, to download the audio. Um, it, it uh, you know, as, because I'm a former speechwriter, and here's a secret: a lot of form, a lot of writers are either former musicians or painters. It's true. And um, the really good ones are former painters, but I'm not that good, so I'm, I'm a former musician. But I, I write for the ear um, even more than the eye, and it's an old speechwriter trick slash problem um, where, where you know, I, I read it out loud, but the music of the words are important to me, the rhythm. There's an unconscious rhythm you're tapping into when you're writing where you can tell when the music's on or off, and, and, um, and, and that's part of the editing process. So I can't imagine someone else reading the audio book of my book, so I insisted on that in my contract. But the good news is this program is being recorded. I'm going to turn it into a podcast. There you I'll go. send it to each of the sponsors, and you can distribute to your guests just so that you can... Hear it, but thanks, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes, would you stand up, please, so everybody can hear you? Yeah. Uh, my recollection is that in the room right behind you, you Did everybody hear the question? If so, Lincoln was alive today, what advice would he give to Biden and Zelensky? Um, and first, he mentioned that the room right behind us, which I just saw as I was getting mic'd up, there is a piece of the curtain from Ford's Theater and a piece of a towel that was used um, to you know, help Lincoln through his final passage after the assassination. It's, I mean, the relics, I can't wait for a detailed tour of this room and this whole space. And this is kid in a candy store stuff. It's fascinating. Um, but the question is, is what, what advice would, would Lincoln have uh, for, for Biden and Zelensky? Um, let, let's, let's bifurcate the two. So one of the things that Lincoln says over and over again, particularly when he's in Richmond, um, and I'll, let me just get the quote exactly right because it's important. Um, there's a 29-year-old German immigrant general named Godfrey Weitzel who is leading the 25th Corps uh, of the Army, which is an African-American regiment, into Richmond after its fall slash abandonment by the Confederates who set it on fire. Um, Weitzel is actually in charge of the occupation at that particular moment. And as Lincoln comes into town, this is two days after the fall, the city's not even secured. As he's going to his boat for the night, Godfrey, General uh, Weitzel asks him, how he should treat the citizens of Richmond. And um, Lincoln says, I think rather importantly, we must extinguish our resentments if we expect harmony and union. If I were in your place, I'd let him up easy. Let him up easy. So we must extinguish our resentments if we are to expect harmony and union. That's not just advice for President Biden, it seems to me, who, um, you know, over people who've served with them over decades in the Senate. He's a genial person. You can find fault with him for reasons of politics or policy, but almost everyone who served with him, especially Republicans, say that he's a good man, that he's a caring person. But, but the extinguishing of resentments is key because I think so much of our politics and our tribal divides today, as in any time, are driven by resentments, this cultivation of our resentments, this elevation of our resentments. And, and you know, the, the book's epigraph is from a pretty obscure speech by Lincoln the night after he wins re-election. And he says, I'll just quote from one more time, um, in any great future conflict compared, 
and it, it says human nature will not change. In any future great national trial, compared with the men of this, we shall have as weak and as strong, as silly and as wise, as bad and as good. Let us therefore study the incidents of this as philosophy to learn wisdom from and none of them as wrongs to be revenged. That's the epigraph of the book. That to me is the most profound Lincoln quote of them all. And, and philosophy to learn wisdom from not as wrongs to be revenged. That's the essential frame that I think we need to learn from our history the, to apply the lessons of our history, to use our shared history as a new foundation for us to come together again. And it requires, though, not cultivating resentments, which is what tribal leaders do to try to divide for short-term gain. We need to understand that this is the whole ballgame here. You know, Lincoln understood that America stood for something more important than itself. We're the only nation in the world founded on an idea, not a tribal identity. And, and so it's up to us to protect this sacred experiment for future generations. Lincoln understood that. He believed that. I think we need to try to approximate, we need to aim for that standard as well. Now, with regard to Zelensky, you know, we talked earlier about how Lincoln came to power and didn't seem like he could possibly be the right man for that moment. No military experience, no executive experience, representing an upstart third party, but he had character and the capacity to grow. I think that's what we're witnessing from Zelensky. Um, I think it's interesting and important, by the way, that because his show, Servant of the People, was popular in Russia, he's been proven more difficult to demonize by Vladimir Putin within Russia. But it's clear, despite the fact he was a comedian and an actor, you know, it's, it's, it's not that that's a, a dispositive, that you can't be an effective leader. In fact, as, as, as you know, Thomas was pointing out last night, um, but both Reagan and FDR remarked how they didn't know someone could be a president without being an actor. Um, but he evidently has character, right? He's got courage, grace under fire. He knows how to communicate and speak in an authentic way. And he's got the capacity to grow. And so I think that's what we're, we're witnessing. It, it, it's a reminder in, in the form of, of that one man, not only the essential importance of leadership, but I think what this whole incident is reminding us and we need to stay focused on is that the authoritarian siren song that we hear repeatedly, we heard it in the 1930s certainly, that authoritarian regimes are more efficient, more effective at delivering for the people, that democracies are divided and decadent and, and you know because of their essential diversity, that that's a bunch of, of BS. It's just we need to remember the real strength of, of democracies and the right leadership can help us do it. Uh, democracies and free societies have strengths authoritarians cannot dream to have for all their claims to efficiency. And I think that's one of the lessons we're seeing right now in this conflict between Russia and Ukraine. This is, you know, it's another reminder that, you know, this is history in the present tense we're watching, but the lessons of Zelensky's leadership are, I think, enduring. Um, but I think they're, they're a similar sort of transformation as we saw uh, from Abraham Lincoln. Yes, Bob. Can you carry that Sure, I think, I think strong men are always ultimately weak. I think people who follow strong men are also ultimately weak. They're compensating for their own sense of weakness. Autocracies seem strong, but they're brittle. They're brittle because they can't adapt. As leaders of organizations, many of yourself, if you have people around you for 20 years who are afraid of you, they're not gonna tell you the truth. That's gonna lead to a bunch of strategic miscalculations that can be pretty profound. 
to the point where they can be an existential threat to the organization or the regime. That's what we're seeing with, with Vladimir Putin. And look, you know, one of the things Biden has said consistently that I think he's gotten right is the challenge of our time is democracy versus autocracy. And um, the autocracies have been gaining in recent years. I mean, you know, by Freedom House's standards since 2005, um, we've seen a waning of democracy after a wave that seemed like, you know, as Frank Fukuyama would acknowledge, he didn't get right, um, you know, the end of history, the liberal democracy. Um, liberal, diverse liberal democracy is something worth defending, but the autocracies have been making real gains, and they've been banding together. I mean, the attempted alliance between China and Russia is a very serious thing. It may not be much bigger than two personalities and, and a piece of paper, uh, given, given the history of those countries. But this is showing a real fracturing. And the fact that the, the free world stood up um, and, and united, and we found a renewed purpose in these international alliances that America and its allies helped create after the war, that we've stopped, I think, taking democracy for granted in the United States, that we've stopped taking these international organizations for granted that have created 75 years of, of peace and prosperity in Europe out of the wake of the two world wars. That's, that's part of the opportunity and the gift that we can still, still take from this. But Putin is brittle, autocracies are brittle, but we in, in democracies need to unite with a sense of common purpose uh, because the alternative, the old siren song, you know, wealth without liberty, right? that was the pitch, right? Come here, y'all get, you get rich and don't worry about the civil liberties on an individual basis. That's a bad trade. It's a bad trade for the world. It's a bad trade for the world in terms of its trajectory. And this is a test of the belief that might makes right. That's what Putin is trying to do. And the whole purpose of the law and democracies and multilateral organizations is to push back on that and say no. Right makes might. And we're not going to allow that world to come back. How about that? How about that? Any other... Question? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ah, sir. ma'am. Sir. Sorry, I didn't see. <laughs> I just saw this big bunch of hair. I'm sorry, I couldn't see. First of all, pleasure. Thank you, sir. Um, you spoke about Lincoln and his vision for peace, and then you also spoke about how after he died, President Johnson took over, kind of took it in a different direction. Mm, kind of. A few years later, Ulysses Grant came into power, and he actually began trying to implement, implement some of those issues creating more civil rights, mm-hmm. especially in Washington, D.C., especially changing laws. How much do you feel when you parallel kind of what Lincoln's vision for peace was, obviously then went through Johnson, but then what Grant tried to do, obviously he was also from near where Lincoln was, grew up in the same kind of situation. How would you compare where he was trying to take it as to what the vision was? It's a great question and a really important one. So it's, it's, it's basically about what, how, how much, how do you parallel Grant's leadership and Lincoln's vision? Um, I, I think Grant deserves much more credit than he gets for trying to return America to the Lincoln path. And you can see it even in the, in the generous terms of peace at Appomattox. Grant is basically taking dictation from what Lincoln has talked to him about multiple times over the previous weeks. Um, I mean, from the River Queen, this actual meeting, to standing on the, the steps of a house in Petersburg, Virginia, um, Grant has internalized Lincoln's vision for how you win a peace, and that's expressed in those terms. When Grant comes into power, you know, he's not only saying, let us have peace. In the inauguration, he's making a case for the passage of the 15th Amendment. He goes to Congress directly and lobbies for the passage of the 1871 Anti-KKK Enforcement Act. Now, this is important for a number of different reasons, one of which is the Reconstruction itself is a cautionary tale about you can have laws embedded in the U.S. Constitution, and they don't mean anything if they're not enforced. 
Progress is not permanent at all. And the fact that he went there personally and lobbied Congress for the passage of this law to beat back the KKK, which was already trying to reverse the modest gains we'd been making towards being a multiracial democracy through voter intimidation and suppression and the murdering of black legislators in the South, the terrorization of people. And that he got the law passed through personal prestige, that he was able to deploy uh, U.S. military, but then had the laws implemented by a Southern Attorney General, Amos T. Ackerman, and a Southern Solicitor General, that's where the real wit of it comes in, right? Because then it's not deepening the polarization. And he goes after the leaders of the KKK, sends them to jail in Albany, New York for a decade, but, you know, because he's focusing on the leadership, right? You know, you want the rank and file to return to the laws. Um, The fact that these laws are being invoked were invoked in a recent trial in Charlottesville or being invoked around January 6th, that a lot of these laws that were put in place uh, are coming back is is self-interesting and and instructive. But the overall lessons of Grant and Reconstruction are key for our country because, you know, the the section of the book that deals with this, you know, I I, I do it in, in, in sharp strokes, right? Because this isn't only a book, but we need to study Reconstruction a lot more as a country to understand the resistance our country has always felt as we move towards a more perfect union. We shouldn't be too hard ourselves or a country, right? We're a great country. We're also implicitly, doesn't even need to be said, imperfect. The goal is to move toward a more perfect union. It's a destination we don't arrive at. But the resistance historically to being a real majoritarian democracy and a multiracial democracy has been profound and at times violent in our history. And we need to understand that and comes to grips with it. And when you look at, at the, 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 the dismantling of Reconstruction and Lincoln's vision and the, the corrupt bargains that were done around 1876 election and, and, and the rewriting of state constitutions and the way that Confederates came back to positions of power contrary to Lincoln's wishes. Uh, and, and they did things like, you know, in, in 1900, there are 880,000 African-Americans on the voter rolls in, in Alabama. Two years later, there are 3,000. You know, that's why these fights matter, and that's why history, that's how history can help us, right? Mark Twain famously said, and I love that picture there of the, the painters, by the way, the, the, author, the painting of the authors. Mark Twain is in the center there in white suit, said, you know, history doesn't repeat, but sometimes it rhymes. And I love that line. Um, and, and part of the rhyming is you got to listen for the echoes, right? This is about applied history. It's not just the useful wisdom we can learn. We should be guided by the eyes of history, but when you hear echoes of old arguments that led us bad places, watch out. Watch out. And, and so that's why this conversation about voter suppression and, and subversion, election subversion matters. It's not a perfect parallel. It's not at all. We've made enormous gains as a country, but studying Reconstruction is a real cautionary tale for our country. Um, but on, on your original point, Grant absolutely carried forward Lincoln's vision because he got it straight from Lincoln's mouth, and he implemented it in the uh, terms of surrender at Appomattox, and then as president. The first point I was going to make out of my closing two points. One, those of us who have kids, grandkids, there isn't enough history being taught in the schools, and what is being taught isn't that great. But we do have great historians, and it seems to me it's our responsibility as parents and grandparents to be aware that there are truly great history books coming out, great historians, and a chance to meet and hear and reflect and take it home and discuss with your kids and grandkids. This is our opportunity, and thanks to our sponsors and John for coming down from New York. uh, It's happening. The second, and my closing point is, uh, as some of you know, I'm I'm now working on uh, my uh, next presidential history book, and as I was 
writing one morning and I was reading uh, John's book. I said, there's only one guy who I want to write the foreword of this book. And it's John Avalon. And I found out this morning uh, it's been approved. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... For those of you who haven't gotten your books signed yet, uh, uh, John will be back over there or bring them up here, whatever. And uh, thank you and Harlan and your whole team for making this such a fantastic event. Thank you so much. Thank you. After reading John Avalon's magnificent new book on Lincoln's magnanimity and spirit of reconciliation at the end of the Civil War and the impact it had on history, it made me wish now more than ever that we had an Abraham Lincoln in our midst in 2022, in the midst of all the hostility and polarization which we have in our country today. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bragan used to say, you can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton, Thanks for listening.